Hi, and a very warm welcome to Journalism, Power and the Pandemic. Uh, this event is hosted by POLIS, which is the journalism think tank at the LSE, along with the LSE School of uh, Public Policy and our Institute of Global Affairs. Uh, I'm Charlie Beckett. I'm a professor here in the Department of Media and Communications at the LSE, and I'm director of POLIS. I'm a former journalist, and like uh, everyone else, I've both been uh, shocked and gripped by the COVID crisis. Uh, of course, above all, this is a health crisis and it's an issue of uh, politics, public policy, economics, and indeed social justice. But the role of the media and political communications has been absolutely vital. This is a huge, uh, complex and fast moving story. It's perhaps the hardest story uh, that journalists have ever had to cover. And at a time when, like everybody else, they've had to work under very difficult conditions. Plus, the media industry itself is already going through a crisis of uh, resources and restructuring. Uh, but British citizens have turned avidly to the news media during this crisis. And the question is, you know, what have they been given? Uh, they needed good information so that they knew what was going on, but also so that they could take the uh, the right actions for themselves, their work and their families. And policymakers also needed an informed and critical debate to make sure that uh, the authorities were acting in the best possible way. In a digital age, of course, we have more uh, communications resources than ever before, but how did that work out in practice? In the next hour, I'm very pleased to say we're gonna to talk to five expert practitioners about their experience and their perspective on this. Uh, Anushka Astana is a senior editor at The Guardian and a presenter for The Peston Show. Her daily podcast for The Guardian often features other journalists covering this story. Richard Horton is the veteran editor of the health journal The Lancet, which has found itself in a situation where it's had to accelerate, as it were, its expert specialist journalism to respond to the constant breaking news. Uh, Pippa Carrera is political editor of the Daily Mirror, which of course, along with The Guardian, got the biggest uh, news scoop of the pandemic with the revelations about Dominic Cummings. Uh, Sir Craig Oliver worked as a news editor at the ITV, Channel 4 News and the BBC uh, before he became director of communications for David Cameron. He's now at the Tenio Consultancy. And Annette Dittert is a longtime Brit watcher as the London correspondent for the German public service broadcaster, ARD. Now, uh, all the people out there who are watching, we welcome your questions. Uh, please uh, put them in the chat and we'll try and put them to the panel. Um, but for now, I wanna get on with this. We've got five brilliant guests in just one hour. And I'd like to start with uh, Anushka. Anushka, you're a very experienced journalist. You've done a lot of different stories in your time. How difficult and how different uh, was this story? How, how has it been for you personally, but also The Guardian? Um, well, I think there's two things to focus on here. One is content, and one is obviously what this has done in terms of pressure on media organisations. Um, we've all seen in recent weeks, and particularly today, including at The Guardian, that COVID has brought great, great difficulties for news organisations. And it's really important to stress why that is, because it's not about content. I mean, in March and April, our readership was so large that we doubled previous records in those two months. 
you know, no one ever thought that we could get more people reading our website than on the morning that Donald Trump was elected. But within weeks of the COVID crisis, we had broken through that, what was seen as a kind of unbreachable barrier. I mean, it was so far ahead of Brexit, for example, and the morning of the Brexit result that everyone couldn't believe it. Unfortunately, in a, at a time when the entire economy has been hit hard, advertising has gone through the floor. And that is why you're seeing things like you've seen today from The Guardian and from the BBC. But at the same time, we are battling to try to provide content on this unbelievable story, the kind of greatest crisis that many of us have, or any of us, I suspect, have actually lived through. And I can tell you about that from the point of view of someone who obviously works on our daily podcast, um, which is called Today in Focus. For people who don't listen to it, it's very, very production heavy. So we have a lot of producers who are involved in it. We do spend a lot of time talking to journalists across The Guardian. So of course, in this period, health journalists, political journalists, science journalists have been particularly important for us. And um, it's very, very heavily sound designed. So it's a big process and a process that normally involves sitting in a studio in an office and producing something to a very high quality. So we had to very quickly work out both, how do we meet the demand for this story, which within days we realized meant we would be talking about COVID and nothing other than COVID for the foreseeable future. The, the appetite for it was off the charts. And how would we do it whilst all being isolated in our own homes, trying to speak to journalists, unable to go out and collect audio. Um, and and there were real difficulties. You know, I'm sitting now where I produce, right? So normally I sit in a studio. Now I sit with literally a duvet over my head here and I, there's a cushion here behind me to try and create as close as I can to audio you know, quality. I've got my microphone here, which is like the thing that I need all the time with me. And I know the BBC are doing the same thing. I present on Week in Westminster as well. And it's a similar kind of thing. You know, I'm constantly talking to people about whether they're sitting in hard or soft rooms, whether they would mind putting a blanket over their head, all these kind of practicalities. But then there's the story. Like, how do we get to the story? How do we talk to the people we need to talk to? And you know what? I think the team has really risen to that task brilliantly because I do think that some of the episodes we've made from lockdown have been some of the best we've ever made. You know, you still can have really heartfelt, heartbreaking conversations through audio and you still can collect audio in different circumstances. You still can get access to certain places that you need to go when you really want to, say, particular hospitals um, or particular situations. But it has been quite hard and we have had to sacrifice on some of the production quality that we normally wouldn't sacrifice on. Sometimes people don't sound as clear as they would um, sound in a normal situation. Um, and it is much more isolating. I don't know what other people think, but I find like when you're not there in a team together in a room, your creativity is dampened. You can't just sort of throw an idea out to somebody on the other side of the desk. You've got to arrange a Zoom meeting and then sit down and do that Zoom meeting. So I do think our creativity is perhaps down by about 10%, although I think we're kind of trying to get through that. I mean, we just had a meeting about technical problems and they are, you know, the, the technical problems you couldn't even imagine, you know, your internet, comes out in and out every now and then and suddenly that is a problem to hitting a deadline that day to get you out for the next um day i mean i think everyone has adapted incredibly well to that i i obviously as you've mentioned also present on itv and that is a very different channel uh, challenge because for that we did have to carry on going to the studio but um 
oh gosh, we're about to get one of the challenges that I always have to deal with, which is my children walking in. But we, you know, we often go to the studio, but we then have to interview everyone down the line. And that does change the dynamic and it changes the way. I really can't have you in here. Um, uh, no, thank you. Sorry. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> that, that doesn't always happen, but that did happen then. Um, I was just being invited downstairs for cupcakes. Um, I mean, literally, just to add to that, which I'm sure everyone here, a lot of people here have, you know, I sometimes I'm on an interview, quite a serious interview and a sensitive interview. I quite often mute myself because the other day, one of my children walked in and started shouting about who while I was in the middle of an interview. And these are the new challenges that COVID has brought us. Um, but what I would say is, you know, it's just the most important time for journalism as well as the most difficult time for journalism and what we really need to do and I think have achieved is maintaining contact with the figures that we need to hold to account, continuing to ask them questions even if they are down the line, continuing to make sure that we present what our journalists are doing in all those different arenas and while a lot of it has been difficult I suspect that we've all learned that there is more that can be done remotely than we realised before and perhaps that can be something that we learn from the end of this period. Thanks Anushka and um, I hope you get the cupcakes later at least as some kind of reward. Um, Richard if I can turn to you I mean obviously we just heard there from Anushka that this is an extraordinary difficult time uh, to be a journalist for, uh, for all sorts of reasons uh, but also, of course, because it is an incredibly uh, difficult subject in terms of, you know, the data, the science. How well do you think uh, we've been informed about that? Well, thank you. Um, it, it's very interesting that we should be having this today because at 10.49 this morning, Robert Peston reported the positive news, as he described it, that was coming on the Oxford COVID-19 vaccine and he said that the first data are due to be published guess where in the Lancet perhaps tomorrow um, and now to use that uh, commonly used evasion I can't confirm or deny that statement um, I can say that our comms department at the Lancet are uh, in high energy mode at the moment working out how to deal with that but it, it underlines I think what is my overall conclusion to answer your question, which is that actually I think the media have performed and are continuing to perform a spectacularly successful role in holding government, in fact all of us, including scientific journals, which I'll mention um, in a moment, to account for the uh, response, often appallingly shambolic response, um, to the outbreak. It is worth reminding ourselves that it was only on December the 31st that the Chinese government announced to the world that this virus uh, and disease uh, brand new actually existed. Um, and it wasn't clear that given the complexity of the story as you underlined in your opening remarks, Charlie, um, it wasn't clear that journalism would be able to deal with that complexity so effectively because the science has been shifting, if not daily, then certainly very rapidly. Uh, look at the importance that we now attach to asymptomatic spread and airborne transmission that a matter of a few weeks ago we were barely talking about. Journalists have had to deal with preprints in ways that uh, they were never given the common currency that they've been given now. Clinical trials are reported by press releases, not by uh, papers reported in 
journals and we've got many scientific voices often all disagreeing with one another and it's very hard it's even hard for uh, editors at, at scientific journals to balance the arguments of what um, different scientists are saying so this is not easy and we've made some important discoveries who would have thought Piers Morgan has become the the ultimate scourge of government um, Emily Maitlis has become the moral voice of the BBC uh, and rapidly slapped down for being so. Um, David Olusoga has managed to cement the issue of racial injustice right at the heart of the pandemic. And LBC, which is, um, I, I love all media, but LBC is my sort of background refrain during the day often, has provided a really permanent critique of what's been going on. And I, I would say better than anyone has connected the public to politics and policy, giving the public a chance to give a, a voice. I think the challenges for journalism really have been unparalleled. Um, to be able to provide a conduit for scientific findings for a brand new virus and a brand new disease and extreme uncertainty, I can't think of another science story um, like that, as you, you, you very kindly call me a veteran editor. Um, <laughs> Uh, in, in 30 years of being at The Lancet. Um, explaining the human stories, I think this pandemic, we've been so swamped by statistics, by graphs, by league tables, that there's been a radical dehumanization of this pandemic. And it's been crucial to bring human stories from care homes to intensive care units, wherever, back into the center stage. And I think journalism has done a brilliant job at rehumanizing this pandemic mediating government messages um, on protection and prevention, often when those messages have been utterly contradictory and confusing, as they have been on masks. Holding scientists and government accountable for their messages and decisions. They've done a brilliant job, and I would, um, The Guardian, for example, held us to account um, very well because they were able to expose um, how a paper that we'd published on hydroxychloroquine, in good faith, I might say, actually turned out to be an utter piece of fabrication and falsification. And it was, it was the Twitter sphere and the media um, that were able to do that so rapidly. But, but, there is a but. I do think there have been failures. And, I, and I, I, it's important to balance the admiration with asking these questions because I want to know why didn't journalists take the first reports in January, in January, from China more seriously. Because if you read those reports, the entire unfolding of this pandemic is described in five papers we published in the last week of January, and yet they were largely ignored. I don't understand why journalists didn't understand themselves the significance of WHO's declaration of a public health emergency of international concern. That it on January the 31st, that is a red alert to the world that should have triggered action, and it didn't. Where were journalists in February when the epidemic was spreading and tens of thousands of deaths could have been prevented if there had been greater attention paid to that spreading pandemic? I don't fully understand why journalists have colluded with a political narrative that has emphasized this sinophobia when actually we should be, at least in my view, 
showing extraordinary gratitude to Chinese doctors and scientists for warning the world in January. It was our failure not to respond to those warnings. And the last um, criticism, disappointment I have is that I wish more specialist science and health correspondents had been given a more prominent role interrogating politicians. Because yet again, this morning on the Today program, Matt Hancock was allowed to escape un unscathed when he gave a perfectly illogical and incorrect answer that mask wearing was not necessary at work or in office buildings while it was necessary in shops and the NHS. That makes no scientific, biological sense at all. So the pandemic's not over. It's actually just beginning from a global perspective. Um, journalists have paid, played a fantastic role in exposing the weaknesses and failures of science and government, um, but their most important role is yet to come. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks very much, Richard. Um, turn it to Pippa. Um, uh, Pippa, no one could accuse uh, you or the Daily Mirror of not trying to uh, hold government to account on this, um, not just the coming story, but more generally. But I just wondered what your, your thoughts were on, for example, as Richard said, you know, trying to understand the politics of very complicated health, but also having to balance that with the sort of public service uh, role of journalism that you want to make sure that, uh, you know, your readers do the right thing. Well, I think, thank you for having me here, first of all. Um, I'd say several things to that. One is that we were very conscious at the Mirror uh, that this was a moment of national crisis. And just in the same way, sort of political parallel of the, of the political parties, Labour initially anyway took the decision not to be um, uh, too antagonistic and to make sure that they reflected what the public wanted, which I think many people felt was to uh, put the national interest first and to, yes, of course, hold the government to account and criticise in specifics, but not to sort of oppose everything just for the sake of opposition. So we and the Mirror felt that it was really important that um, we did the same and that we had a role to play in the national crisis in terms of delivering messages on public health. Uh, we also had a role to play uh, both with our readers and, and sort of wider uh, uh, and more widely with supporting the NHS, obviously in those busy early days when it was very um, confusing for a lot of people. Um, I think we felt that we needed to try and boost morale a bit. So, uh, you know, support many of our readers and more broadly who were working uh, in the NHS and care system. But then also coming back to what you're saying about holding the government to account. Now, um, combining those three things in such, a, in such unique circumstances is obviously very difficult. And that is before you even get to the situation that uh, Nushka mentioned about um, juggling everything from home, because we very quickly all went back to, uh, to doing that. And I, I'm at Westminster today, but this is maybe only the third or fourth time I've been here. Uh, more often than not, I'm sat at my kitchen table and throughout the coming story was actually sitting in my bed trying to hide away <laughs> from my entire family. I've got three young kids. Um, so abandoned them to my husband and um, and sort of tried to crack on with it. But that's very unusual, not just from the creativity perspective that Nushka mentioned, but also, you know, the more the, the normal routine around politics of being able to just wander down to Portcullis House or around the chamber and bumping into politicians. You know, gossip by appointment is not quite as effective. Um, and then also you miss out on that reading the body language of politicians. You might have bump into five people in the space of 10 minutes and, you know, learn more from a sort of a, a facial expression or a glance than you actually do from anything they say. 
Um, and then we also, in terms of the, the more um, regular briefings that we had, suddenly everything went virtual. So our lobby briefings in the morning were done down the line with about 60, 70 people, everyone forgetting to mute. So you get someone's dog barking and you'd get, you know, someone's kids coming in and everyone getting very frustrated about that. Uh, and then obviously the afternoon briefings, as we all know, was replaced by the number 10 um, daily briefing with the minister and initially scientists, although they sort of fell away by the end. Now, my other role um, as well, or current role this year is chair of the press gallery. And along with Jason Groves, who's political editor of the Daily Mail, he's chair of the lobby. We've worked quite closely together on, on our side of those briefings. So that includes things like drawing up a rota for the press side, not the broadcaster's questions. Number 10 wanted to keep control of those, but they relinquished control to us over that. So, I mean, I'm interested that Richard mentioned about the presence of science journalists and specialist journalists. We tried very hard, given we had most days just two or three questions, to make sure that not only was there a mix of national newspapers in terms of the political spectrum, but that also that we got a regional question in every day. And actually, we, we all agreed that that was an important thing, given this is a, a virus that affected different parts of the country very differently. And we also tried to get in a specialist publication. So, um, you know, we had the Health Service Journal a couple of times, we had Nursing Times, we had Pulse, the GP's publication, we had um, other, other areas um, that were affected by coronavirus. We were specialists in from those as well. Because, you know, um, we, we political journalists are nothing if not slightly full of ourselves. Um, but I think even we recognise, I see Craig's raising his eyebrows there, um, but we recognise that uh, we're not specialists in health. And that may have been, you know, honestly, that may have been part of the issue at the beginning, Richard, when it came to how, how speedily um, newspapers generally uh, and, and broadcasters, but, you know, the media generally took the threat um, we were, we were too busy focusing inward, maybe, and possibly our specialists weren't given enough freedom to, to set the agenda. And I think that's something that we'll all be reflecting on ourselves. Um, and I, I mean, I've got lots to say, but I'll just very quickly appreciate we've got everybody else to get in as well. Just want to make a couple of other points. One, it, one of which was in the first months of this crisis, Parliament wasn't sitting. And I think it's very easy to be an armchair critic and sit back and say, look, these journalists aren't holding the government to account properly. But don't forget, we're only one part of the system. And while we may be the fourth estate, Parliament was the third. And um, it just isn't the same as having, you know, regular weekly questions um, on the floor of the House, Prime Minister's questions. Committees in particular can do the sort of scrutiny that's just impossible in those sort of half an hour long press conferences. So while we're part of the system and we tried to do everything, we tried our best, we of course couldn't do everything. We didn't get everything right. And then the other thing is the relationship with number 10, which I, you know, possibly more of my press gallery hat on than my mirror hat on. But at the start of all of this, the relationship wasn't great between the lobby and number 10. Um, you know, we'd just come through the election, publications like mine were excluded from certain Tory events. Um, and uh, subsequently, there was a lot of debate about access to particular briefings, which were given by the civil service and certain publications and broadcasters weren't allowed into. But in March, number 10 called a truce, some would say an uneasy truce, I think that's fair enough, and effectively told us that the slate was clean. And so far, firstly, initially, they abided by that. And I think that worked for everybody because we all recognise the severity of the crisis and the importance of getting public information out there and accurately. That has frayed at the edges, I think it's fair to say. And a part of that is, is this number 10's, um, uh, I don't suppose anybody likes, face, likes being criticised, but as, as the pandemic has gone on and we've learned more about it and we've recognised some of those failings, such as you know, care homes and the, the lack of PPE initially and test and trace now, um, I think they're finding it quite difficult that we're perhaps more in challenging mode. Um, but, you know, the truth is still there, albeit uneasy. And as several of your 
panel have said, we're just at the start of this, we're entering the economic fallout stage, possibly going into um, another uh, sort of second round of the health crisis this winter with a second wave. Um, so we're just, you know, we, we recognise the need to, to keep on carrying on and, um, you know, we'll, we'll do our best to do that. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Pippa. So much in there to, to, to unpack. And it does lead very neatly on to, to, to Craig. Um, you, you know, before this, this crisis, as Pippa referred to, there was a sort of um, distance, let's put it like that, between government and uh, the media. The, you know, the government was even sort of boycotting certain broadcasters and uh, news outlets. And now they've reverted to sort of daily um, live press conferences. Do you, what are the kind of lessons do you think that um, they should be learning as well as the journalists from from this whole crisis? Well, thanks, Jolly. I feel a bit like the class SWAT here in that I'm the only one <laughs> with the LSE background on. Um, <laughs> you're, you're teasing me by suggesting that I do that. Um, but yeah, look, the reality is it's, it's true that, that um, this number 10 wanted to reset relations with the media. And I think it very clearly wanted to say, particularly to the print media, that you are not as powerful as you uh, once were and that we want to get you in line. I think COVID-19 came along and the reality is that they discovered that you do need to be able to engage um, when there is a crisis and you do need to be able to put ministers out on a regular basis to do things like the Today programme. And I hope that when this finally finishes, that there is a resetting and there is a sense in which ministers are regularly out there and held accountable. I suppose the main point that I want to say is that I think that the, the government communications handling of this, I think, has been overstated the extent to which people have said how bad it is. I don't think it's been nearly as bad as people say it is, and certainly not as many journalists have said it is. Um, and I think that people probably need to try and understand quite how tricky this is. When you're in number 10, it's not an excuse, but when you're in number 10, you discover that there are an awful lot of journalists and not very many of you, and you find it very difficult wrangling that particularly at a time where the time for the next headline is not the top of the next hour, but the time it takes somebody to put out a tweet and you're constantly expected to react. I also think that the government felt the pressure very, very early on that it needed to fill the vacuum or the vacuum would be filled for it. And that's why the daily press conferences came along. But quite quickly, I think they felt that those were incredibly difficult. There's an expectation that every day you're going to come out with a new news story. You're going to say something that is clear. You're subjecting yourself to a lot of questions, which sometimes you don't know the answer to. And I think that the reality of, the, of COVID-19 is we are in virgin territory. People haven't experienced that before. And I think that ministers finally got used to the idea of saying, look, sometimes this is difficult. And maybe a bit earlier on, they, sh they should have realised that. Um, I also think there's a danger in terms of communications that um, there's an expectation in the modern world that you can talk your way out of something that you've acted your way into. And the truth is communications can't do that. If you don't have sound policy, if there's an issue there, you're going to have problems. The government has had problems over care homes. I suspect when the inquiry comes out that that will be a major issue. The fact that they shut down very, very quickly without making payments into the hospitality industry, I know they feel it's a particular problem. And I suspect perhaps most controversially, and maybe we can get to this into the questions, uh, I think they feel that they overdid the fear. They listened to behavioural scientists and thought that British people would not lock down. And as a result of it, I think they're reaping the dividend of that now and are trying to communicate to people, push them the other way and say, look, you really can go out. You really can go to work. And that is confusing. 
I think that the other thing that we do also need to do is to get in perspective how the government has handled this. If we'd said at the beginning of this that the NHS would not have fallen over and the furlough scheme would have been as successful as it has been, people would have said that's a pretty good result. And yet sometimes I think we act as if it's been a complete disaster, everything's fallen over and the, the world has ended. I think the media has done a very good job holding um, things to account, but it has struggled. And I think it is worth taking note of how it has sometimes struggled. I think it's defaulted, particularly at the beginning, sometimes to a factory setting of negativity. And what the media does, I think, when it's confronted with a big story is it often looks for the weakness, magnifies and amplifies it and probes it. And when people saw that on a daily basis with the same question being asked over and over again in different ways, looking like you're trying to find the split, looking like you're trying to find the problem, a lot of people reacted and said, hold on a minute, we want some information here. And I also think that people also thought, hold on a minute, Look, this is difficult for the government and there are not situations where there are straight answers and easy options. And I think sometimes when we're covering what's going on at the moment, we lampoon and lambast and say, oh, this is ridiculous. But when you're trying to edge out of a lockdown, you're not going to have a perfect system. You're going to have a situation where there are contradictions and there are issues and there are situations about what do we do about offices and is that different to shops and the NHS? I suppose the final point I would just make very quickly is I think that the most interesting thing of this and that maybe we could have focused on a bit earlier on is the, how COVID-19 has accelerated trends that were already happening. And you've probably seen that acceleration, um, particularly in the economy, in terms of the hospitality industry, the, the, um, in the high street, that kind of thing. But you're also seeing it, I think, in terms of the media. The print media has resulted in serious trouble. And I think a lot of newspapers in terms of hard form are really struggling. Having said that, Anushka talking about the explosion of podcasts, digital has accelerated, and that people have found new things to find, new ways to find information. Um, and I think that's a good thing, but we are seeing lots of areas of the media under um, struggling and struggling to keep up with the pressure that that's having, particularly when the bottom has fallen out of the advertising market. But we can talk about those in the Q&A. Yeah, huge problems uh, ahead for uh, media anyway. Thanks very much, Craig. Um, let's go, if, if you like, to a, 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 an outsider view. Um, Annette, you know this country terribly well. You know the media and indeed uh, the government terribly well. Do you see, when you've been watching the media and what's been happening, do you see it as a continuation of how things happen in Britain or do you see something new? And how do you rate it? Thanks for having me, Charlie, first of all. Uh, it's an honor to be with you here. We meet occasionally, but it's really nice to be part of this panel. Yes, I've, um, yeah, I thought before, before I came to this this morning, I thought about w what I could contribute to this. And I thought, although, of course, I mean, there has been so much media coverage and I've only seen a very small part of it. I thought maybe I'd give you, give you my subjective view of how I saw the British media performing in comparison with the German media. Although I normally don't follow much of the German media anymore since I came here 12 years ago, I did it this time. And I asked myself, why did I do that? And um, yeah, the, the simple answer is I got on the whole better and clearer guidance and information there. And mostly talking about the plain facts and the public service aspect of this. And this had not to do with the quality of the reporting of the British media in general. I agree with, with um, most of my predecessors that uh, there was excellent reporting. 
um, on, on a political level, I mean, the coming story, of course, the excellent long reads in the Sunday Times, really good um, pieces of journalism in, in the BBC, who I think had a very, quotation marks, uh, good war in this. Um, the whole covering of the care harm crisis by Louis Goodall, I thought was excellent journalism uh, and really led to changes in, in, the, in, in policy. So I thought that was really good. But overall, I felt more confused than enlightened by much what I saw or listened uh, to here. And that's why I finally turned to the German media. Um, I think, thinking about that, I think it had not so much to do with the quality of the journalism here, or with the journalists themselves, but mostly with what and who the journalists here had to fight with, which was a quite, in my view, quite incompetent government that was not really explaining what they were going to do, not giving really clear guidance, but putting slogans out instead. And so how I watched it, the British media was mostly struggling to understand what the government was doing. And that took a lot of uh, energy and space um, away from the topic as such. So what I was missing or what was missing in my view was more pure and simple information like what is this virus? How can I behave properly? Whenever I really had these kind of questions, I had to resort to, to ARD, to my home station, and I got much more of that there. So the, the rather boring, educative, informing aspect was a bit, aspects were a bit underreported, I thought. Um, mostly also because journalists had mostly, were mostly occupied with trying to hold the government to account, which was, or trying to fi find out what, what, what was happening at all. Um, and um, yeah, and the, I think the German media in comparison had a much easier task here. I mean, they had a head of state who, explained the R-rate herself in, in a very comprehensive way. I mean, an explanation so short and clear that it even went viral in the social media world. So there was much more space for this public service aspect for these rather, yeah, this rather boring information in the German media as they didn't have to struggle with a government that was rather obfuscating facts sometimes than enlightening. Um, so for, for example, ARD, which is sort of the equivalent of the BBC in Germany, they had they ran every evening. They had a 15-minute special program from 8:15 till 8:30, very yeah, prime time slot where a science journalist just explained things every every evening for 15 minutes, without really doing much policy because they they didn't have to really because the public in general thought it was rational and and sensible what was going on. So there was just more space for the yeah, for the for the boring um, yeah understanding of the facts, and um, that I think led to a situation where the audience in general could follow in a more sensible way what was going on, and um, and it led also I think to an overall more sensible behavior, and also to the feeling that uh, the guidance that was out there the way the media could sort of help the government um, was much less antagonistic, which helped, I think. For example, the whole mask disc discussion was, was in Germany was very similar a few months ago um, when, um, when then the health minister just simply explained that they couldn't do that yet because the supply was an issue, but they just simply admitted to it. And then, uh, then there was, then the, the, the mask, the reporting on mask was mostly about 
once there were, the supply issue was solved, um, yeah, why and when should we wear them? Whereas, for example, this morning when I listened to Radio 4, Nick Robinson was spending more than two thirds of his time with an interview on Mars with a, with a, with a government minister on on uh, whether Gove or Johnson were right and, and, and what was going on at all. And the, the whole question about why masks could be sensible, when they should be worn. I mean, it happened at the very end and it was just one question and it didn't, it wasn't the main topic. So um, just don't get me wrong. I don't think it's the, um, I think it's basically this kind of culture war that has been created around various issues here. Um, that has naturally become a big part of what journalists are reporting here. And I think that has been at times a huge distraction from what a more public service reporting um, yeah, should, should have been. Forward, yeah. So um, that's why I found the German media in this phase more helpful for me. Uh, and it's for the first time in 12 years that I, that I started watching them again. <laughs> 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 but um, yeah, don't get me wrong. It, it's not, a, there was excellent journalism as well. It's just sort of, I just wanted to add that perspective and these thoughts I had while I was, uh, yeah, watching uh, mostly the BBC over the last month. Right. Dungeon, Annette. Uh, Anushka, can I come back to you and start sort of picking up on some of the um, messages we're getting? There's a couple here from um, Sunny Singh um, who picks up on something you alluded to, which is, um, how much do you think this is going to change more permanently uh, the way that you do your journalism? I, I assume not always from your bedroom um, in the future, but the way you do your journalism. And also as part of that, he also refers to the sort of, if you like, the mental health issue for, uh, for the audience, actually. You know, that when you've got this kind of overwhelming uh, story, do you have to find kind of different ways to tell it as well? So it's kind of, is, it, do you feel this is... Uh, Craig mentioned this is kind of accelerating trends. Uh, do, you, do you feel this is sort of part of the way that journalism is changing anyway? Um, well, yeah, I think some of it is. So, for example, a kind of much more of a shift towards digital from print was obviously already happening and is going to be accelerated in many ways as a result of this, because partly because of what I started by saying, which is the advertising decline was so much more pronounced in print. And this amplifies all of that. I, I, that, in, that mental health point is really interesting. And I just want to mention something on that before I answer the main question, which is we did an episode with our sketch writer, our political sketch writer, John Crace, um, about his mental health issues during COVID because he suffered with very, very, very severe anxiety as a result of it. Couldn't get out of bed for two days at the beginning of this process. Was kind of just completely overwhelmed by feelings of health anxiety largely. And interestingly, in, in one of in the interview with us, one of the things he said was that to help his mental health, he actually had to stop watching news after six o'clock every evening. Um, I mean, not that we were trying to tell our listeners to turn off the news, but, you know, there is a sense that it got very overwhelming. And I do find that now that we're moving on to issues other than COVID, it is a kind of welcome relief for all of us as well, because it was a very panic period and it was difficult to continuously read all that information including I do think you know I, I agree that could it's hard to do as much public service broadcasting and writing when you're trying to deal with the government in a difficult period but I do um but I do think there was those pieces actually did very very well because there was a huge thirst for that type of information the kind of very basic Q&A's etc um, just in terms of how we'll change how we do journalism I think two things just to just on Craig's point about how what we think of the government 
and Richards, in fact, if you look back to January, I mean, we were reporting on this. I look back, actually, for a piece we did on 100 days of COVID and found that my colleague Sarah Bosley had written a story on the front page on the day that the WHO were reported human to human transmission. So it wasn't like we weren't doing stories. It was about the emphasis of the stories. But you have to be led to some extent by politicians and by scientists. And we were reading the minutes from, for example, the Nerve Tag Committee at the time, who were saying, you know, the risk is low. We shouldn't be putting checks on flights coming in from Hubei province. I mean, you know, to some extent, you're going to be led by that. And we wanted to feel, I think all of us as human beings, as well as the journalists, reassured by the government's claim that they were following the science repeatedly. I wanted that to be the correct thing. I wanted to think they were doing this right. And I found that actually there's a certain broken kind of... Um, contract if you like or something has broken down in terms of the trust of government as you started to reveal that while it was an unprecedented situation it was something also that was heavily predicted and it was something that they were supposed to have planned for and that there were warning signs coming from China and so whilst I understand what Craig's saying about you know it was a difficult time for the government and they were doing a lot of things right I do think it's going to make people very suspicious of government in the future when they wanted to Kind of feel kind of warmer towards the government at the beginning of this and then they feel somehow let down and just finally quickly on the practical things i think we're we're not almost at that stage to think about it yet but clearly we have continued to make for example as many others have a a very intense uh, production intense product entirely from home so clearly we're not going to continue doing that forever but clearly there are huge lessons in terms of how we can change our work-life balance and still produce the journalism that we're producing thanks very much Anushka. richard if i can turn to you there's a question here from ant babaji who asks do you think there's a need for better science training for journalists but i wanted to add to that um whether you think there is perhaps more attention needs to be paid for perhaps media training for the sort of science community or do you think they've done a a, a really good job at uh, you know i'm thinking you know the science research community but possibly also um you know the kind of medical health community in general well i i mean there are some really superb science journalists science and medical correspondents across the media um and uh, I just wish they'd been empowered a little bit more. And Sarah Bosley is one of the best. Absolutely. I completely yep. agree with you, Anushka. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I just wish they'd been a little bit more empowered by their editors to, um, to take their stories to a higher level within their organizations. Actually, I think where the science literacy comes is amongst the political class. Um, so now I'm going to be an ally of Dominic Cummings here. Um, <laughs> because if that's his diagnosis of um of the political class and the civil service well he's right um uh you know it's it's um and that's definitely that's definitely a lesson that needs to come out of this we do need more science at the heart of at the heart of government because the signals were not recognized they were not diagnosed in a timely manner um what was your other question well just just how well the scientists or the health people if you like oh on the media training for i well I, I think I watched a few excruciating interviews with members of SAGE. Um, John Edmonds, who's a lovely guy and had a lot of interesting things to say, but, you know, it was, it was terrible to see him go, struggle through the interview, not because he's not a good scientist, he's a brilliant scientist, but he, you know, he, 
he was being led in a direction by the interviewer and you could see where it was going and it was going to be a total car crash and and he he didn't he didn't have a an easy response to that so but in fact in most most universities now they have um pretty impressive media training programs for scientists who are going into the media as i'm sure you know i'm sure lse's is the same as many universities and um uh, so I don't really understand why that didn't work. There were others who were absolutely brilliant. Paul Nurse um, was superb, and uh, at various intervals, he popped up and totally um, excoriated the government for not having a strategy at some at, at pretty key moments. And he was one of the few scientists who had the courage to stand up and be heard. A lot of scientists didn't. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Pippa, um, we're getting quite a few questions around um, sort of social media and the in terms of you know journalists and the media being on social media themselves and I know you're you play a very good Twitter game um, and I just wondered how that shaped you mentioned that you can't go to the bars anymore or or sorry uh, the, the, the public <laughs> the, committee rooms, the committee rooms surely <laughs> yeah. the, the part you know commons library to, to, to talk to politicians um, I just wonder what kind of impact this has been, especially with, of course, all the kind of crazy conspiracy theories, a lot of anger, you know, a lot of anger on, on social media. Uh, does that impact on the way that you're trying to do your journalism? I kind of view the two things as separate, to be honest. I know that's just my approach, and for others, they're one and the same. But, um, the, but Twitter, for me, is much more about um, comment and analysis. So uh, while our stories go up there, I'm not afraid of putting a, a little bit of my personal opinion out there as well in a way that I might in a forum like this or, um, you know, in a, a radio interview or in a podcast. Um, when it comes to my journalism, I'm not a comment writer. Um, I'm not particularly comfortable sort of sharing uh, any personal stuff about myself. Um, it's um, much more about what the story is and that that is right in my view. That's what it should be about. So, um, whether it's for our, whether it's for the paper or whether it's for online, um, my, uh, as in our website, my focus is very much on the story. Twitter is kind of like, if I have time and feel inclined to do so, then I use it. Um, but I'm very careful to do, you know, give myself a couple of days off a week because it can get pretty tough. And actually, um, as a, as a woman in political journalism, I'm, I'm sure lots of people get abuse. They don't have to be women to get abuse, but it seems sometimes that women get particularly targeted. And a couple of years ago when I actually worked at the Guardian and was writing a lot of stories about, um, Labour's woes with antisemitism, I got a huge amount of abuse from the left, um, the left Twitter, um, and was advised by a colleague to, to mute my notifications which is sad in a way because you miss out on a lot of debates but actually it's made my life so much simpler and I don't sort of lie in bed at night and pick up my phone and go oh god what awful things are they saying about me now when they don't actually know me um and instead I you know I can dip in if I want to and I'm feeling brave but um I think it's quite a good sort of protective mechanism although I do acknowledge that it means that I miss out on debate um and it feels like other colleagues in you know certainly at Westminster use Twitter for a similar not everybody, but, you know, for, for similar reasons. I mean, you get, obviously, those who work for the BBC have to be much more careful um, and periodically get slapped on the wrist when they're not. But uh, newspaper journalists and you know, people like Robert Peston and Beth Rigby will might, might eject, whether it's via a blog or they're directly onto Twitter, will, on social media, do tend to eject a little bit of their, 
their viewpoint. And I, I think that as long as it's understood that that's what they're using the forum for, then that's no bad thing. Great, thanks, Pippa. Craig, we've got one question here, which sort of picks up on what you were saying. It talks, it's from Viviana Samiento, who is talking about the kind of overflow of information. And as you said, there's, that's on both sides. There's an overflow for the journalists to cope with, but also for government. And you seem to be advocating that government should engage, but I wonder what you feel the best way to do that. I mean, is it hour-long press conferences? What about the sort of Facebook messaging? We've seen Rishi Sunak being absolutely beautifully designed messaging on social media. Uh, is, is more the way forward, or do they have to sort of ration the flow? Well, it's a tricky balancing act. And one thing that, as I was trying to say in my opening remarks, is that if you leave a vacuum, it will be filled for you. And that means that you feel that you have to be communicating constantly. I think the solution to that often is a bit of, particularly in something like COVID-19, is some refreshing honesty. And I think Rishi Sunak has handled this very well, not just because he's been Santa Claus, because he's been able to hand out hundreds of billions of pounds, but when he's interviewed, he actually often gives straight answers. So he was asked about dead weight and moral hazard in terms of what he was doing in terms of some of the policies. And he said, yes, absolutely. I've just got to do something. I think that the government, that is something that you have to handle that carefully, but being straightforward and honest um, is really, really important sometimes. And there's a nervousness about that because the politicians still worry that they're going to be told, gotcha, or you've admitted a weakness or you've got something wrong. And the one other, just very, very quick point, I think that there's a danger in this discussion that we act as if the science has been pure and if only the idiotic politicians had just taken what was obviously on the table there. The reality is when, this, when there is an inquiry into this, there's going to be some pretty serious questions for the scientists too, not just the politicians. There's going to be serious questions about why did we keep the two metre rule for so long? Why did we say face masks weren't important at the beginning? Um, did we actually give enough of an idea of who was actually dying and why? And did we have to throw a blanket over the entire economy? And what impact has that had in terms of people who haven't been having cancer tests and haven't been able to, to do things as well? It's quite a tricky, difficult thing. And it's a danger that we do, scientists and journalists, all goodies, politicians, all baddies. Um, it's just a much more complicated, blurry picture than that. Just bring Richard in on, on there. And you're nodding, Richard. I mean, the, the implication here is that this is, we keep using the word unprecedented. And I said it was the kind of biggest, most complex story that perhaps we've faced in a long, long time. Uh, is there a danger that we uh, journalists are supposed to be you know truth seekers and we want to give a complete message to the consumer but is there a problem here that both perhaps politicians and journalists want certainty and of course you know you, you peer review articles scientists strive for certainty but is there a danger here that we just don't accept that this is bloody difficult <laughs> yes i think that's right i, I actually think the journal the journalism that I read um, and listened to um, acknowledged that uncertainty and actually tried to pick it apart and try to understand why we didn't have um, the evidence so clear about whether it was one meter or two meters. I remember the very, very involved discussions about what the evidence was, how certain could you be about one meter or two meters. So I, I think those discussions have been very impressive actually but I do agree with Craig that it's it, it's too simplistic to say that the scientists played a fantastic um, 
a game the last five months and it was all the politicians um, fault. That is not true. Um, I, I think that scientists definitely have to be held accountable for the decisions. And if you, we do have fantastic scientists, some of the very best in the world, but look at the complexity that they were. We have a chief science advisor, a chief medical officer, we have SAGE, we have SPY-B, SPY-M, NERVTAG. I mean, we've got this in ridiculously complex system of committees where no single organization took responsibility for what their judgment was going to be. NERVTAG thought that they were just going to comment on where it was now and SAGE would do something. I mean, it was, it was a mess. It was a total mess. And it's not an individual scientist who's responsible for that mess, but the system that we put together for science policy advice needs to be streamlined and needs to be led with a very clear line of accountability. There was no clear line of accountability in the scientific advice that was being created and being given. Thanks, thanks Richard. Annette, I'm just going to get back to you. We've got a question here from Jackie Skinner who says that she says, unlike Germany, our government weren't allowed to give clear information because they were continually asked repeated questions without a context quotes. I wonder, you, you spoke admiringly of much of the, the journalism done in the UK during this period, but is there a, a problem there in trying to balance that more aggressive watchdog gotcha type journalism with the more explanatory role that, jur uh, that journalism has? I think in this case, uh, it just took up too much time, the gotcha journalism. But also, as I tried to explain, it was necessary because it, I mean, journalists had to try to hold, not only hold the government to account, but also to understand what they were doing. Because it wasn't clear from, from what came through uh, at these uh, increasingly strange press conferences where uh, we didn't have follow-up questions in the end, so it was extremely unsatisfactory and nobody understood a thing at the end of the day. So I think, I really think it wasn't the problem of the quality of the British journalists, but the problem that you have a really complex story, one of the most complex stories and, and the most yeah, the biggest crisis at the same time. So you want to be a bit more careful at the beginning, but then you are confronted with a government who is, is all over the place. So, so you have to use time to understand whether this is the right strategy or not. And that took up in this case, I think, a lot of time and um, yeah, was detrimental to the public service task that um, uh, journalism should have had as well here. Thanks, Annette. Look, there's so many interesting things we could follow up. We've only got a few minutes left. I just wanted to go back to um, the land of cupcakes and Anushka. Um, just to ask, uh, to give you the final word here, Anushka, I just wondered, we, we talked about how journalism ch has changed. I mean, it's been incredibly tough for you guys, and you know very well that the future is going to be, be, be tough. But I wondered what is your sort of best hope out of this, you know, trying to end on a slightly more upbeat note. Um, what's, what's, your, what's your sense? Because I remember covering horrible stories in the past and it's ghastly at the time and it's very difficult. And afterwards you think, well, what did we do right or what could we have done uh, better? And I wonder what you feel about this. And we're certainly not out of this, so it's, it's not over. But what's, yeah, your, what's your feeling for the future? Let me, let me give you that. So, and 
I, I know what Annette's saying is not meant to be critical in this way. She's saying that that type of journalism was needed because of what was going on with the government. But some of that journalism was the best journalism I've ever seen. Of course, the Sunday Times stuff that you've been talking about, our own investigations teams, the work that Pippa has done, the kind of revelations we've had about care homes. We've brought to life across the whole of the media um, some of the kind of most dramatic and human stories that you've ever seen, whether it's watching the 10 o'clock news on both on all of them, in fact, on all the channels, you watch the news and you see these unbelievably well-made, powerful packages about what's going on within the NHS. It has changed the way that we as a society think about the NHS, which is positive. In terms of where I'm coming from, which is a new type of media, podcasting, you know, we are reaching more people now through podcasting than we sell print papers to. And that is a lot of people. I don't think we're allowed to give you our figures, but they are very, very high. And those people are largely under 35 they're listening to in our case 30 minutes of in-depth reportage on whether it's you know care homes or whether it's you know what's going on inside the NHS or whether it's the kind of economy it's very serious journalism and the thirst for it is great so I know a lot fewer young people are watching news bulletins on TV and people and uh, not buying the newspaper as much, but I do not think that they're not interested in the news. And I think the COVID crisis shows very much that there is a huge future for journalism as well. Great. Thanks very much, Anushka. Um, there's so much has come out of it, uh, this last hour. And it's been, to start with, it's just been uh, really wonderful to hear you sort of pay testimony to the, the work that people have done and also the, the awareness that everyone shows that, of course, um, this process has been uh, anything but perfect and that there have been so many uh, lessons learned on, on all sides, really. Um, we've had tons and tons of questions. We haven't got time for them. But I am incredibly grateful that you have all taken an hour out of your busy lives uh, to share your experiences and your views. So thank you very much and very good luck and best wishes uh, for the future to you all. Thank you very, very much. Thank Thanks. You. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>